Good morning, friends. I'm glad you guys could meet me so early in the morning. Let's go over our big list of executive producers. We have none. We have none today. Let me look in the chat room. Somebody said that maybe we should get me a new timer thing. Maybe we should. Maybe if we had some executive producers, we could make that happen. How can you become an executive producer? Well, for a donation of $20 or more, you can become an executive producer, whether it's a cash app, whether it is a, what do you call it? A super thanks or a sticker there in the chat room, $20 or more, you can become an executive producer. Where does the money go? The money goes, all of it, from the show, every cent, none of it comes to me. None of it even goes for production. None of it comes from our current licensing for the things we have to license, which includes software. And every time you guys see an artwork, that comes out of my budget, but not from the money. You send all of that money, that goes to our radio license. So I'd like to thank the producers we've had very much, and hopefully we'll have some more in the future so we can continue to move forward with this thing we call Midnight Radio. Today we're... There is a, let me get this correct, actually. I had it right before I started talking. We have a preliminary status hearing. It's going to be at 8 a.m. today in the big city of Moscow. Uh, We're going to go over the things behind that, exactly what it is. It's kind of boring. We've got a whole lot of more information for you than that on the flip side of this. I am Jerry Adams. You're listening or watching Midnight Radio. I'd like to give a shout out to those listening on the live stream. It's a safe way to do it if you're driving down the road or if you're at work operating heavy machinery. You don't want to risk injuring yourself looking at my goofy ass. So thank you all very much for showing up this early morning. No better place to grab you a bowl of Fruit Loops and go. Some of the information that everybody's going to be talking about after me during this day. One of the things that's going on is Nancy Grace is continuing to make herself a meme. Pretty soon you're going to see her desk in front of everybody's house. I'll let you know what I'm talking about right after we go through this 3D imaging, new 3D imaging of the outside of the the Idaho 4 murder house, as it's being called. Then we're going to go into a little bit of Nancy Grace and whether Brian Nothingburger has a snowball's chance in hell Of making it through this trial with a favorable with a favorable judgment for him first this in the beginning most of us believed the two surviving roommates Bethany and Dylan were sleeping on the first floor since then we've learned Dylan was sleeping here on the second floor along with Zana and Ethan located here Kaylee and Madison were located here on the third floor. The dog was located on the third floor in the room by itself. Let's move around and see through the walls into the kitchen to the back slider and take a look at the time frames. At 4.04 a.m., the suspect can be seen trying to park his car. At 4.09, approximately five minutes later, he enters the house through the back slider. At 4.18, he leaves the house after committing the crimes. At 4.20, He's caught on camera driving away at a high rate of speed. All of this only took nine minutes. Let's watch what that looks like. The suspect enters through the back sliding door. 
He pauses at the stairs to look around to make sure no one's up. He then turns and goes upstairs. The first bedroom he stops at and opens the door, he sees no one there. He continues to the next bedroom. Here we know what happens. Downstairs, Dylan is sleeping. The noise from upstairs wakes her up. She thinks it's Kaylee playing with her dog. She gets up and goes to the door and looks out. She sees nothing there. The suspect then continues down the stairs about three minutes later. He then heads to Xana's room. Outside, there's a security camera picking up some whimpering, cries and a thud at 4.17. We've learned that Xana was found on the floor, which might explain the thud. Dylan again hears something and looks outside her door. She sees the suspect. He walks. So I want you guys to know that we will be putting a link beneath uh, the description below so you guys can check out this full video. I'm not going to play the full thing here. But I want you guys to check it out. I want you guys to share it. It's really good. Walks right past her and leaves. Maybe I did play it all. But there's going to be a link in the video for you guys to share it. Uh, please allow me a little bit of time to update those links. So did you guys hear about this? I, I thought I learned about it last night, but... Uh, I think I was mistaken in what I actually thought I saw and what I saw. This is Nancy Grace. Uh, she is blasted for setting up a studio outside the Idaho murder house to use crime scene as shows backdrop. We had a lot of conversations recently about the things that the mainstream media have been saying about the online sleuths. And I just want to know what people would think if, for instance, um, I don't know. I'm just throwing some names out there. What is that one guy you guys watch? Jonathan Lee Ritchie, what if he did this? Do you think he would even be allowed to do this? I don't think so because I knew somebody. I know somebody who was at the scene uh, a few days ago, and they were doing a drive-by just to get a picture of the house, and it seemed like law enforcement was shooing them away. But here's Nancy Grace with her iPad, her nice gloves right in front of the house, uh, you probably see this footage today when she does, if you haven't seen it already, as she does her hearing show, she's turning it. People are saying this is like a, a football game show here, pre-game show. Moscow, Idaho TV journalist Nancy Grace faced quite the backlash after she set up a temporary office just outside the home where four University of Idaho students were murdered. She arrived at the house scene to provide on-ground updates in real time. However, some of her comments drew the ire of critics online. Gray, 63, who's been following the case closely, arrived at 1122 King Road residence to set up a, to get a feel of the crime scene and provide updates to her followers. Here in Idaho, in front of murder scene, with Fox Nation producer Kelly, it's all much different than the photos shown. She tweeted on Wednesday, January 11th, Attaching the photo of her temporary broadcasting setup. Here it is. Now I did see a I did see a selfie in the Discord that her and her producer in front of the uh, I, the Moscow Police Department. 
She tweeted this out. Mm, how appropriate is this? Is this disrespectful to the victims? I believe it is. I believe she's turning herself into a meme. I could take the background out and place her in front of anybody's house and say, well, at least your day wasn't as so bad that you have Nancy Grace sitting in front of your house in her desk and her mittens. This is almost like Bernie Sanders with his long coat there at the inauguration of Joe Biden, just kind of chilling out. But this is something, this is a murder scene. This isn't a game. This isn't for ratings. It goes on. In the next couple of tweets, a veteran reporter appeared to insist multiple times that these girls never had a chance. Later in a tweet, she said, Predator can get so close to their windows, these girls never had a chance. But she shared various points of view from the scene. Here's some more points of view, and we also have a uh, video from Nancy via Twitter, unfortunately. I'm here behind the murder scene right now, and you can see straight into the girl's place. This is the parking lot we've been hearing about right behind their home. I mean, it's right here. It's a lot, a lot tighter and a lot smaller than you think. And just looking up here, I feel like <laughs> you can see straight into their home. These girls never had a chance against a predator. I'm here behind them. Some people are saying that this is really wrong. That's what I'm saying. What do you guys think? I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to call in for the second half of the show, we'll have the phone lines open for 10 to 15 minutes. Phone number is 325-261-0892. When we're not doing the show live, you can call that number, leave us a voicemail message, tell us what you think, especially if you're on Spotify. It doesn't matter if you're uh, watching us. And we are filmed live in front of a YouTube audience. She continues here. Oh, you thought that was the last of it. She was slammed for setting up her portable studio outside the home. She has a table set up in the road in front of the house, like a portable studio with bright lights and everything. She's insufferable. These are some of the comments. I hope the neighbors throw rotten fruit at her. One fumed on Reddit. I just saw the photo and thought, how disgusting that is. Like using these poor kids' home as a effing backdrop to her show another rope the fact she set up a studio in front of the house as if it is an nfl pre-game pre show is so wrong how disgusting another comment read you thought that was it is not some blasted her for views about the crime scene and the tragic murders as well i don't know who she is but the whole they never had a chance thing rubbed me the wrong way major ick one offered nancy grace makes a comment about a predator with zero self-awareness yep there's a predator filming right now, Nancy. Someone else added, "This is her in front of the, this is her in front of the house, and this is one I think is going to be a meme. You take the background out and you put it in front of somebody's house, and say, uh oh, Nancy's here.'" That said, the outrage over Nancy's Grace's arrival at the crime scene is a far cry from the response News Nation journalist Brian entered. Brian Inton, otherwise known as Jackass, garnered when he visited the home in November. They reported how sleuths 
online were thrilled after Inton, a lesser-known journalist who shot to prominence after breaking the Gabby Petito story, announced that he was heading to Idaho to cover the grisly story. Heading to Idaho on Sunday to cover the college students murdered on New- for News Nation, the journalist tweeted. And, uh, yeah, how did that relationship between you and the online sleuths go now there, Sweet Cheeks? How is it? Yeah, those that rose you to fame and you turn on them and talk to them like they're jackasses in front of the victim's family. Yeah. Yeah, good way to go, Brian. Congratulations on the continuation of your career, as I'm sure you'll have, said nobody. All right, let me uh, continue this. I know you guys are having a hard time seeing it. Just that's it right there. I got a lot more. Uh, This isn't the first time. Nancy Grace has screwed the pooch. It comes from a long history of screwing the pooch, apparently, and this is not me saying it. This is actual facts. Um, Not that I have anything against her, though. Uh, Honestly, I don't. I don't know the lady. But I do have some information I want to share with you about her, and this all comes from our listeners. She needs the ratings, somebody says in the chat room. NG's slight vocal fry makes me suspect. Don't bother me at all. The hearing is soon national news. What makes her think that she would be, that this would be a good idea? It's for ratings, and that's what she's getting right now. She's getting ratings. We're drawing attention to her. You guys might tune in to see this footage on, on, on her doing it live or it being broadcast live. So, is she getting what she wants, a career at 60-something? Well, I think so. Like I said, this isn't the first time. She's had ethical issues, apparently. I don't know how many of you guys have heard about this, but there's an article from 2005 which states, there's something alarming about Nancy Grace, the preternaturally angry prosecutor turned television personality who now fumes through primetime hour on CNN's storied but usually respectable headline news channel. It isn't the habitual snarl, the narrowed eyes, or improbably arched eyebrows. It isn't the name calling. God knows that's becoming ubiquitous feature of cable news as that irritating crawl. It isn't even the sneer, though that deserves special attention as a rhetorical equivalent of a black hole. And I'm going to go down. So some of you do know, and some of you don't know of Nancy Grace's past, and oftentimes we've been going through these clips, and she talks about herself being a victim of a tragedy. So here's what that tragedy is. Her 25-year-old fiancé was shot to death during a robbery. Because of that tragedy, Grace has said she abandoned plans to become a literature professor, enrolled in law school, and became a prosecutor. Nine years later, she joined Court TV, and more recently has emerged as the top drawn headline news primetime lineup. There is, however, one inconveniently disturbing detail in which CNN maintains a studied silence. On three occasions involving three separate cases, appellate courts have cited Grace for unethical behavior while she was a Fulton County prosecutor. The most recent of these admonitions came last week, this was in 05, by the way, when a published opinion from the U.S. 11th Circuit Court of Appeals concurred with lower court findings that Grace had played foul 
She played fast and loose. Excuse me. They said that Grace played fast and loose with her ethical duties as a prosecutor in 1990 triple murder case. The lower course courts had admonished Grace for failing to disclose the existence of other suspects in the case and for knowingly allowing a police detective to testify falsely regarding the matter. The appeals court, however, also concurred that Grace's misconduct did not affect the outcome of the case. And again, I'm going to put this in the description of the video below. And this happened, uh, she was accused of unethical behavior on three separate occasions. You can read all about this in the article. And whatever your opinion is, that's your opinion. And yet the facts remain. My opinion is, I'm just reading this information. I find it interesting. It's hard to have opinion about someone you don't care about. I'm going to be honest with you. What they do there doesn't affect me. I see people, I see YouTubers, one in particular, who also doesn't really matter to me, put Nancy Grace up on their thumbnail all the time. And I guess it's a big ratings draw or something. Maybe it is, but, uh, well, there you go. Uh, check out these articles and let me know what you think. I got more than that. Got a lot more than that. Let me go through. This is very interesting to me. Maybe not what you're expecting. And I think we're about to go into some. We've had enough of our Nancy time. We're going to talk about nothing burger. And somebody sent me this. This is how to tell if a man is a predator. And the source of this is from the FBI Behavioral Science Division. And for those of you just tuned in, yes, we're, we are going to talk about the hearing. I have some information uh, for you about that, what it, it exactly is, what they're going to be going over, and the next steps in the legal process. We have that coming up. Right now we're going to talk about Nothing Burger himself. How to tell if a man is a predator, source, FBI Behavioral Science Division. One, he's really attentive in the early stages of a relationship. Uh-oh. Two, he uses manipulative language. Okay, now that's a bit different. What is manipulative language? I had somebody sending me an email using manipulative language lately. Well, one example of it was from Zygmunt Berinsky, where he was talking about protesting and how to get something via protesting. One of the things he said is you attack somebody with their morals. You know, you hold them to their own standards, supposedly. You don't have, have to have any morals yourself, but for, and it's better if you don't, but you attack them on their morals. Now, they don't have to break these morals, but you accuse them of it to manipulate them. Ladies and gentlemen, if you, anybody comes up to you and does this, you kick their ass to the curb in a heartbeat. You don't have time to put up with that bullshit. I'm telling you right now, and I'm using strong language I know, because I want to imprint this on your mind. If somebody, some man, some woman does that to you, and here's an example. Let's say you really hate liars, and you've uh, voiced this sometime. And this person, this manipulated, this manipulative, low-life scum-sucking bastard says to you, you know, you said this to me, and you didn't do it. You're a liar. 
And perhaps it's not that you lied. This isn't a personal example, by the way, in case you're wondering, it's not. But you just had to say, okay, well, it's not possible. Give me another day or something like this. And they attack you and what your own morals is. This is manipulative language, all right? And you stay away from that person. You kick their ass out of there in a heartbeat. Just so you know, that's a good example of that, too. He uses manipulative language. Three, he makes his behavior and speech seem normal. In other words, his manipulation is a normal thing. Sometimes they'll say, it's because I love you. You know, I'm just worried. I'm just going through these things. This is my normal. He plays with the victim. He ridicules her. He pushes her boundaries sexually. He disempowers her. One of the ways people do this is taking them away from their family or their group of people. Uh, moving, making her not work, whatever takes power away from somebody. He secretly boasts about his conquests. That's it. I'll put a link to this also in the description below. This is how to tell if a man is a predator. I'm going to go through this quickly one more time. He's really attentive in the early stages of a relationship. He uses manipulative language. He makes his behavior and speech seem normal. He plays the victim. He ridicules her. He pushes her boundaries sexually. He disempowers her. He secretly boasts about his conquest. Ladies, I wonder how many of you watching this show right now have experienced some of this. If you have, I'd, I'd like to hear about it. I think we need to raise awareness on these issues. This is a predator. This is a sick individual. Uh, predator is someone that wishes to consume. So, phone number is 325-261-0892. We're going to open the phone lines here in about 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes. If you want to give me an example of this or if you want to call on the voicemail line, leave me a, a message about that. I'd like to hear it. We've had a lot of conversations recently about Nothing Burger and his online habits. And one of the things is Tap Talk, where he was talking on Tap Talk about how he felt when he was 17 years old. We talked about the implications of psychotropic drugs at the time on his early mental development. Uh, We talked about his hyper-awareness of how his mind worked and who he is. This is something that a viewer picked up and they shared with me, and I think it's valuable, so I'm going to share it with you right now. Because this is the character, the avatar that he used in many of those online forums. And the name is XR Kuhn. You know, we've been talking about Papa Rogers. Well, before Papa, before the education came to him, he's XR Kuhn. It's a very juvenile form of the same thing. XR Kuhn was a human male Jedi knight who fell to the dark side, assumed the mantle of Dark Lord of the Sith, and waged a destructive war against the Galactic Republic and Jedi Order during the era of the old Sith Wars. Again, this is a fictional character from uh, the Star Wars franchise. So did Nothing Burger see himself as once being good, and he fell to the dark side? And he took on the mantle of a dark Sith Lord? something to look at some something to look at again everything's going to be in the show notes for you to check out 
But this is the avatar that he used before there was a Papa Roger. It doesn't seem so far fetched to believe once he got educated, he used something a little less obvious, something a little more grown up that didn't have to do with the video game. This is evolution of a madman. Let's talk about this article I found, and uh, maybe I'll wait. Before I do that, I believe I have a video for you here. So this is this is interesting article I just it's not an article it's a video I was checking out it's about someone actually talking to Nothing Burger It's uh, one of his neighbors and he was discussing the case with him One of his neighbors recently stepped up and started talking about it this is from yesterday so Hold on. Semester got underway today ahead of tonight. We have new details in the murder case of those four University of Idaho students. This is the spring semester got underway today ahead of suspect Brian Koberger's expected court appearance tomorrow. For the first time, we are hearing from one of Koberger's neighbors. CBS's Lilia Luciano reports from Moscow. Tonight, in an exclusive interview, a neighbor in the Pullman, Washington apartment building of suspect Brian Koberger says Koberger spoke to him about the murders. The neighbor asked not to be identified. He brought it up in conversation, asked if I had heard about the murders, and which I did. And then he said, yeah, it seems like they have no leads. It seems like it was a crime of passion. At the time of uh, our conversation, it was only like, you know, a few days after it had happened. So there wasn't much details out. Also tonight, the search warrant for Koberger's Washington apartment has been sealed temporarily. A judge saying the details could, quote, prematurely end the investigation and create a threat to public safety. Meanwhile, just six miles away at the University of Idaho, students are returning to class today for the first time since Koberger's arrest. Many, like freshman Madeline Pollack, expressing relief. I was kind of glad to see a lot of cops around just so... All right, I'm not going to play all this because the main thing I wanted to show you guys was that he was talking. He was talking to his neighbor about the crime, okay? So when he went across the country with his father, don't you think he talked to his father about the crime? I'm not saying he confessed. I'm not saying he didn't confess, but I'm saying his father was talking about a shooting that happened and how there was some action going on there. You don't think they talked about the crime? I think they did. What a what a big shock to the f- mother and father about their son being this murderer, potentially. I bet they're still maybe possibly in the stages of denying the reality of the situation. And uh, I don't think just because your family member does something this horrible that you automatically blame the parents. I know... The knee-jerk reaction is to do that, but personally, I can't. If you guys want to, I'll have that conversation with you. And maybe you'll convince me otherwise, but 
there seems to be something off in this individual's brain and they're accountable for their own actions. And I don't believe they raised him up in a way to become a mass murderer, which is what he is at this point. He's not a serial killer unless he is. There's still a potential for that, isn't there? I have this article right here I want you guys to check out. This is from Alan Dershowitz. It's called The Justice Game. In his 1982 book, The Best Defense, lawyer, professor, and litigator Alan Dershowitz writes about the criminal justice system and sets out 13 rules of the justice game. Some may find them a bit cynical. In fact, many, many may find them a bit cynical. In any case, students ought to be aware that some lawyers harbor these views, and in some locations, these views are maybe justified. In any case, they are worthy of class discussion. Here they are. Number one. Almost all criminal defendants are, in fact, guilty. Two, all criminal defense lawyers, prosecutors, and judges understand and believe rule one. Three, it is easier to convict guilty defendants by violating the Constitution than by complying with it. And in some cases, it is impossible to convict guilty defendants without violating the Constitution. Five, all prosecutors, judges, and defense attorneys are aware of Rule 4. Six, many prosecutors implicitly encourage police to lie about whether they violated the Constitution in order to convict the guilty defendants. Seven, all judges are aware of Rule 6. Eight, most trial judges pretend to believe police officers who they know are lying. Nine, all appellate judges are aware of rule eight, yet many pretend to believe the trial judges who pretend to believe the police officers. Ten, most judges, can you guys see that? Yeah. Most judges disbelieve defendants about whether their constitutional rights have been violated, even if they are telling the truth. 11, most judges and prosecutors would not knowingly convict a defendant who they believe to be innocent of the crime charged or closely related crime. 12, rule 11 does not apply to members of organized crime, drug dealers, career criminals, or potential informants. 13, nobody really wants justice. This is just something to think about. If you guys have been watching the show for a while and you saw and a lot of you didn't see it. A lot of you didn't see it. You thought it was a joke. You didn't think it related to this case, but it did in a big way. And I'm talking about the Kinderfeller show, the last one. I'm talking about the one on Christmas. Most of you guys didn't watch that, didn't think much of it. I suggest you go watch that. That, that really talks about what life behind bars is like and the process of getting convicted. So maybe that would inform you in some of these matters. We have more to talk about right now, more about this hearing that's coming up.
before we go into the hearing, I want to talk about this article. Because I want to know, as I assume that you might want to know, how Mr. Nothingburger related to the people around him. Make sure you can see all this. It says he was eager to make friends, a neighbor said. He was so chatty that one dodged him. For residents who are undergrads bouncing between parties in Greek life, living in the college town of Pullman, Washington, can feel isolating. So when Arun Dash, a 28-year-old engineering student at Washington State University, got a new downstairs neighbor in his Steptoe Village apartment complex in August, he understood why the stranger was eager to make friends. Dash said, nothing burger. Investigators have charged with killing four students at the nearby University of Idaho in November went out of his way to introduce himself and try to make plans to hang out. He asked me what I was studying, where I'm from. Dash, who moved to Pullman from India for his study, said he would make just friendly small talk. On December 30th, when the law enforcement officials charged Nothingburger with the killings, the portrait of a loner, a gruff student of the criminal mind who kept to himself, began to form. But interviews with Dash, his roommate, and others who casually knew Nothingburger paint a different picture, one of a man who wasn't always introverted and could sometimes have an outgoing demeanor that left people feeling impressed or put off. Uh, Mostly from what I've seen, ladies and gentlemen, it made them feel put off and creeped the hell out i'll leave that up to you there'll be links in the description below now let's talk about the hearing i want you guys to know what the hearing is what kind of hearing it is what are the processes in the hearing and where we go from here i'm no nancy grace but we do have some good some very good listeners and watchers and subscribers some Fruit Loops, really. That's what I call you guys. Call yourself what you will. We're all Fruit Loops here. Who helped me with the legal aspects and getting all the information I can. So I appreciate you guys that helped me very much. This is your show. And what I mean by that, this conversation with you, this isn't about how great knowledgeable I am. I'm just a conduit for all of our information to come together. We take our information, our wildest speculations, our wildest theories. We put a pin in it and we get the real information. We compare it. That's the formula. That's what the show is about. Let me continue here. What we have today at 8 a.m. Moscow Co. Moscow time is a preliminary status hearing. And a preliminary status hearing and a preliminary hearing are two different things. Okay? Let me explain. For those of you that are watching, you can read along with me. A preliminary status hearing, the one scheduled for today at 8 a.m., at the status hearing, defense will choose whether they want a preliminary hearing. What is a preliminary hearing? So do you hear that? That's all that's going to go on. It's basically paperwork. Nothing burger is going to be sitting in there, and they'll ask him, do you agree with this? And he'll say, "Uh uh-huh, that's it. Back to you, Nance. She'll probably go over something similar to this. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, all this information, this, this um, infographic is coming from Anna Klein, attorney at law. So a preliminary hearing is this. 
It must occur before January 19th unless extraordinary circumstances exist. Prosecution puts on a mini trial. That's a preliminary hearing, which is not what we have today. This is a status hearing, whether or not they want a preliminary hearing. Or the defense waives preliminary hearing. And the preliminary hearing, if there's no probable cause, defendant is released. If there is probable cause, defendant is held for trial. And if defense waives the preliminary hearing, then a plea is entered. That's it. So if you guys want to go over that to know what you're going to look forward to today, well, I mean, it's going to be over by the time I can put the link up. But here it is. It's a preliminary status hearing. Do we want a preliminary hearing? And if the defense waives it because of the, why would they waive it? Well, because of all the information that was in the affidavit, perhaps. And let's just go ahead and do this. Then they enter a plea. Guilty or not guilty. Because there's no insanity there. So there you go. The difference between a preliminary status hearing and a preliminary hearing, they're two different things. Let's continue on this train of thought. I got another bit of information for you. And this is some paperwork that was recently filed, and I don't know if you've guys seen this or not. But I'll put it on full screen. The defense has requested discovery from the state as of yesterday. And yesterday was being the 11th. Does this mean preliminary hearing or is this normal? And this is a paperwork for it. We got an answer back from uh, a paralegal. It's completely normal and doesn't signify anything when we get new matters at the firm. As soon as we are down as counsel of record, I send motions for discovery and exculpatory evidence. So they filed. They requested discovery from the state. This doesn't mean anything as of this point, just that they want information. And they have to file their paperwork in a timely manner so they get it in time to properly defend their client. Nothing more, nothing less. And that's where we're at with that. Now, I have a veteran defense attorney that lays out the case that nothing Burger team could make about the holes in the affidavit. Welcome back to Sunday Night in America. Using surveillance cameras and cell phone information and hard work and a little bit of DNA, police seem to have solved the murder of four Idaho University college students. Brian Koberger, a graduate student at nearby Washington State University, has been arrested and charged with four counts of murder. He was studying, of all things, criminology. If you have not had a chance, you should read the affidavit supporting the arrest warrant. The police worked really hard. They were patient. And as we've said before, they caught a break when the killer left the sheath for a knife behind and DNA was found. But DNA alone doesn't do it. You need a suspect to compare it to. And now the case moves from arrest to prosecution. But that does not mean the investigation is over. Paul Morrow has been following the case from the beginning, and he's been on the ground in Idaho. He's a former New York I know we have some audio engineers in the audience, and if you're listening to this with headphones, you can hear the problem they're having with audio right now. It's not me, it's him. How did the police identify and develop a suspect? 
So that's actually a very interesting aspect of this case because as all of us heard early on, there was this reporting that they had done a genealogical database uh, uh, ping to see if the uh, DNA from the knife sheath that you reference comes back to somebody and it came back to a relative, his father. Problem there is that the genealogical databases are not considered, at least by the genealogical companies, up to the evidentiary standard. They don't actually love cooperating with law enforcement fully because it damages their business model. And so there's a reason none of that is in the affidavit because what they did was they just used that as a clue. They knew that, okay, this is pointing at somebody, looks like very strong evidence, but we have to parallel that. We're gonna go get that in a stronger, better way. And so that became the focus of the investigation very clearly, and that's why the case came down that's when some and how interesting it did. Information. If you look at the end of the affidavit, they collect the garbage DNA on the 28th, they have it matched on the 29th, they must have turned around right that day and said, Mr. Prosecutor, write that arrest warrant, and the case comes down on the 30th. All right, surveillance cameras, cell phone towers. I mean, I, I, I love reading that affidavit. I mean, I, it, it's fascinating to me. But for folks who haven't had a chance to read it, how did that play a role in this investigation? Well, you and I discussed this at, at an uh, earlier time, Trey, that they were going to be using a lot of this digital stuff, but it takes a lot of effort and time. That's one of the things I think frustrated the public. So what they would do in this case is, it takes a couple of rounds of search warrants. You're gonna be dumping the phone towers, the cell towers, to see what cell phones. I'm gonna stop this right here. I got another video for you guys. I do wanna open up the phone lines here pretty soon, but you can watch the whole video yourself. But this next video, is goes into the five key pieces of evidence against Brian. I'm going to go over that. The last one was about being able to poke holes in the affidavit and, and how they could do that. We're all thinking that they put the least amount they needed to put him behind bars, and they have a whole lot more information. That's what we think. Now, we just read that, that um, treaty from Alan Dershowitz, so you wonder behind the scenes if somehow, even whether he's guilty or not, they'll be violating his constitutional rights. I don't know. There's been, there's a lot to be said about that, but again, that's what his defense has to defend with. Let's go into the five key pieces of evidence against Brian to sum up for some of you, for, for others of you, you know this, and then we'll be opening up the phone lines. I want to have a conversation with you about it. I don't get a lot of phone calls this early in the morning. But maybe we will today after this. Welcome back to Sunday Night in America using surveillance cameras and cell phone information and hard work and a little bit of DNA. Police seem to have solved the murder of four Idaho University college students. Brian Koberger, a graduate student at nearby Washington State University, has been arrested and charged with four counts of murder. He was studying, of all things, criminology. If you have not had a chance, you should read the affidavit. What I see in that affidavit that really began to point to the suspect is the fact that two WSU, Washington State University campus police, took the initiative after they received on the 25th, November 25th, the uh, bolo, be on the lookout for the white Elantra. One of them ran a database check, one of them just physically went out looking in the middle of the night. 
both of them hit on Kohlberger's car. And so that was pretty fast, and that was an early indication of where they were going. From there, they realized, okay, we got something. They did the search warrants on the phone pings. They were able to track what he'd been doing. We see that he had been doing some version of stalking either the girls or the house. And from there, it began to become a fait accompli. They knew they were in the right place. And then the DNA became the real slam dunk. You know, Paul, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot. I know I do. People, normal people cannot fathom doing this to another person. So they want to know the motive. What, yeah. what was the motive behind this quadruple homicide? And sometimes it's just depravity. But is there a motive here? Is there something that you can say, okay, nothing will explain right it, but, but it, it explains a little bit why he did it. You know, that uh, it calls for speculation. I would just say that I think that the answer to that likely resides in this criminal justice fascination that he has. That's not an entirely uncommon thing if we look into the past. For those of you that didn't watch our show last night, we, that same question was asked of Steve Gonsalves, and I liked his answer a lot better. You guys want to check that out? There's also a link to that interview with him in the description below last night's show the phone lines are now open the number is 325-261-0892 we read i read you a list of the behaviors of a predator from the fbi behavioral unit earlier have you dated somebody like that did you have a relationship with somebody like that if you did i'd like to know we can discuss it the btk killer had a similar background uh the golden state a uh, serial killer, had been an ex-cop. It was a case here in New York involving somebody who, uh, a bouncer who killed somebody who uh, I know the case well, was a uh, very fascinated with law enforcement. He was kind of a law enforcement buff. You run into these things. This guy really seems to be dedicated to this. Now, he had applied to the uh, Pullman PD to do an internship and actually said he wanted to help rural police departments develop their uh, digital forensic program. And he doesn't appear to have been accepted to that. Now, I don't know any more than that. It's, again, pure speculation. But this intense focus he had on being in law enforcement and being useful to law enforcement, to being engaged in law enforcement, and yet maybe not getting there, you have to start to wonder if that was one of the things that was a lack in himself that he felt he really needed to prove. Any idea of when the trial would begin and whether the evidence is Idaho's a death penalty uh, state, but right. whether or not the evidence is solid enough. Um, I mean, the crime can be terrible, but the evidence has to be solid, too. Midnight caller line. This is Jerry. Who am I speaking with? What up, Jerry? Midnight. This is Boss Macca. Hey, good morning. I didn't have any idea that you woke up this early. Yeah, yeah, man. I'm I'm glad that you're on. I, I I was like, man, when I had an epiphany earlier, you had just went off, and I'm like, oh man, I can't wait till he gets back on because I gotta talk to him about it. <laughs> I love to hear it. What do you got for us? Well, man, um, I was watching um Truth and Transparency show earlier today, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, she's pretty thorough with what she does. You know, she she gets down to the like the details of a lot of things. And, um, ever since that incident in Pullman occurred, like, it's always kind of like sat ill with me because, you know, I don't really 
Like, there's too many coincidences in this case, right? So, when I was watching her show, she was talking about Brian's path of travel that that night that he so-called did that. And before he left Pullman, like, before he shut off his phone, he was, like, kind of suspended in one area for about nine minutes which is like a little bit south of where he lives, but before you get on Interstate 270. Mm -hmm. And she was showing it on um, like a Google map or whatsoever. And when she was showing the location on the Google map where it showed that he was there for nine minutes before he shut his phone off when he traveled to Moscow, I noticed that that area, that location looked really familiar. So I started thinking about it. I said, that is the exact same spot where those police shot um, that person in Pullman on the 15th. Like, if, if you go back to that original news footage when they shot that person, and if you go and look at her show and she's showing where he was at for nine minutes unaccounted for, it was at that same location where those police had shot that person. Okay. Um, and so like, like, like you had just mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, and we talked about it yesterday, the, the car ride when he got pulled over in Indiana, I find it odd that, you know, he mentioned shooting in Pullman, but didn't mention the big story that the whole nation really knows, uh, about the four students in Moscow, which is only 10 miles away from him. Right. He didn't mention anything about that to the police, but the, him and his dad are like, Oh yeah, the shooting in the shooting in Pullman. So like I, I went and looked up the, the exact time that that happened. And that event in Pullman happened on the night of the 14th at 9 PM and carried on till 3 AM the morning of the 15th. Right. Right. So it shows him and his dad being pulled over like 10 o'clock in the morning in Indiana on the morning of the 15th. So I'm just like, just sitting here thinking like something, like I said, there's too many coincidences in, in this case that just don't make a lot of sense. And I'm just, I'm almost wondering if that's why that, um, that affidavit coming out of Pullman is so sealed because I'm just almost curious if that shooting in Pullman that happened on the 15th is, is somehow related. I almost want to say that that person could have been his accomplice because I just don't think that Nuttenberger could have did this alone. So you're thinking it could have been his accomplice. He stopped there. Picked him up. And then, and then that person that he picked up could have actually been the DoorDash delivery person. I know that's a, a, a huge coulda, woulda, but they haven't showed the identity of the DoorDash person. They haven't had that person interviewed. Not that they're supposed to, but. They do know it who just, it is, though. This is something, somebody almost, they did check out, and they they do know who it is. They they know whether it's the person who got shot or not. Yeah. We don't. I don't, I don't know. I just find it odd. You know, like I said, there's a lot of coincidences in this case that I just, I like the, the, the DoorDash being there at four and him entering that house at about four Oh two. So do you um, know where that was in Pullman? Was it a residential area or was it, you know, before he hit the city? 
So he stopped there for a few minutes. What you said, nine minutes yeah. on the 15th. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, on the 13th is when it was. And the 15th, there was a shooting there in that same area from the police. So yeah, that is, that is interesting information. And why would if he, why would he have stopped there in nine minutes? Perhaps he had the murder weapon at that time, or maybe let's look at it this way. Maybe the cops were there. They shot somebody that they thought was him, but it didn't actually relate to him. Yeah, because I think it was the roommates that actually called and they're like, Oh man, dude has us held hostage in here. And, um, like it was the roommates that called. He had his roommates held hostage. And, and if you think about that, like, man, what would make you hold your roommates hostage? Like, like, are they going to threaten to tell something on you? You know, I've been you, in a situation. You know, I've been in a situation like that before. It didn't happen to me, but it happened in a facility I was training at in the military. And there's one person who was failing out of this military school I was at. And, uh, he was freaking out about it. I don't know if drugs and alcohol were involved or not, but he was in there and he held his roommates hostage for a while before he was dealt with. Um, yeah. So it being a college town, I don't know if it, it'd be related to that or not, but yeah. And then, and then like, you know, then going back to the timing of the, him being pulled over with his dad, the first stop 10 o'clock in the morning, that matter was only seven hours fresh. Or, or like the per Jay Lord just said, five a.m. So five hours fresh. So it's like, how does that affect you and your dad when you and your dad been on the road since the thirteenth, the shooting in Pullman, and and that's the first thing that comes out your mouth, you know, when the cop pulls you over. I think he even mentioned it on both phone call. I mean, on both interactions with the police when he got pulled over by them. But he mentions nothing about the Moscow situation, which to me has way more gravity than, than that shooting in Pullman, which would only been five hours fresh to him. You see what I'm saying? So it's like, I, I like when Truth and Transparency, when she was breaking it down on on the map, when he left the house, he got down like a couple miles away from where he lived, and then he was within an area of. 0.01 miles for nine minutes, and then he shut off his phone and drove over to Moscow, uh, according to the pings and all that from what they're saying. And that area where he shut his phone off is that same location where those police sniped that dude out. Like, when they when they took that dude out, they took that dude out in a sniper fashion. You know, they didn't, like, go break up in the apartment and, and shoot him. Like, they took him out like sniper style extreme right? with extreme prejudice you know what i yeah. think you're on to something uh one we have we have a sub here her name is hot ham radio and she goes oh i think she has a video where she goes over that because she's into that and has not she's very knowledgeable in that area of signals but also let's go over what you said about the father and he did bring that up and that happened five hours earlier what does it tell me it tells me that him and nothing burger were talking about that you know we, we yeah. watched a video earlier. Where, had, yeah, he was talking to to one of his neighbors. Nothing Burger was talking to a neighbor about the murder. And I'm sure if you're there with your dad for that long, he probably talked about the Moscow murders too, if his dad didn't already know. I'm not saying he confessed or not, but maybe he did. But you're right. They were talking about that thing that happened five hours earlier. Why was this of particular interest? Was it just small talk or is there something more there? Could it be somehow related? Yeah. 
Yeah, because that's a great point, and and I commented on that when you brought it up. Like, okay, you talk to your neighbor about the crime of Moscow, but you're on this 80,000-mile road trip with your dad, and you guys didn't talk about that, and that's the, the, the shooting in Pullman that just happened five hours ago, which has nothing to do with you guys because you guys have been on the road since the 13th because it shows in Colorado that he had passed um, – his plates had got ran in, in Colorado Wait a on second. the 13th. Wait a second. I think I missed that originally. You're saying, uh, was it November the 13th? He was on the road? December the December 13th. December the 13th. So he was on the road from December the 13th, and this was the 15th. Yeah. The, this shooting, the shooting in Pullman happened on the night of the 14th and carried over to the early morning of the 15th. So it started at 9 p.m., on the night of the 14th. So he was already on the road. He had already, if he was in Colorado on the 13th, and that means that he must have left Idaho on the 12th. So they, they, they scan his license plates in like Colorado or something weird on the 13th and he gets pulled over on the 15th. Like I said, that, that situation that happened in Pullman was only like five hours fresh. It's 10 o'clock in the morning and you just get pulled over by a cop and you and your dad over here yapping your lips about a shooting in Pullman that you guys weren't even physically there for. You know what I'm saying? So it, it like like we talked about yesterday, it's like a diversion tactic. There was a couple things in that video that he was, because I understand psycho, uh, psychology very well. There was a couple things he was doing in that uh, body cam footage that was... Uh, very alarming. Who the, uh, the son? Or, off. The son or nothing burger? Yeah. The, the, uh, I mean the yeah, father well, yeah, or the, nothing the burger. The son. Okay. Nothing burger. The, the son. Yeah. The son. Um. But I, I just I have a feeling that they're connected. I just like I said, there's too many. If you look at the numbers, you're dealing with two college towns that are ten miles away with a population combined probably together at forty thousand total and when you start crunching these numbers like oh well what's the what's the coincidence that the DoorDash person and him will be there at four o'clock in the morning that's not normal four o'clock in the morning DoorDash is not normal and breaking into people's houses when there's five cars parked in front is not normal neither what's the coincidence that this hostage situation in Pullman you know happens right around the time when they started you know catching on to him and I think that's why he flew his dad out there to drive him back because that was right around the time that they actually started to kind of catch on to him. And if he was rubbing shoulders with police already because he was a teacher assistant for criminology, applied for an, an internship uh, with the Pullman Police Department, what gave him the inclination that he could do that? He must have already had known a cop or a campus cop that was like, you know, what? you're a good guy. You should come apply for, with us. So he had some type of insight. Um, and, and this is kind of off subject too, but I, I, I meant to mention this earlier when I spoke to you with him having access to the university crime lab, dude, there's no telling. He could have grabbed that knife out of the crime lab, out of the university. He even could have grabbed chloroform. I'm pretty sure that university has chloroform in, in, in one of their labs or something, you know, uh, for training purposes or teaching purposes. Because uh, it's just, I find it really hard that one person could have went in there 
and did all this and the world not know. Like like I said, the dude, there's apartment complexes all around, neighbors. There was two surviving people, so he had to subdue these people in a certain type of way to 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 make it seem effortless. Now, who was like, it I was effort. talking to the other night that said they believed it all happened within six minutes? That wasn't you, was it? That that was me. So it was me. That includes it, subduing them with chloroform. Yeah, well, chloroform works instantly. Yeah, but you got four people, and then you also have the knife wounds. Yeah, I mean, what else could it be? He would have had to have, like, a stun gun or something else other than that knife. Dude, he would have had to have, like, I'm I'm almost thinking it could have been chloroform, honestly. Um, the, the, The two upstairs, maybe they're already asleep. You put it over their face while they're sleeping, they're more asleep. (laughs) uh it it, you know i'm I'm just turning over every stone right um i'm trying to make sense of the two nine minutes that are unaccounted for the nine minutes in pullman before he went there and then the nine minutes that when he came back like i said when he came back at nine o'clock in the morning he was uh, according to the records he was at that house longer than what he was when he committed the murders and now we're talking where it's daylight outside. You're outside for nine minutes just sitting in your car looking like a weirdo. Like, that doesn't, like, you know, things are, just something's not right with this situation here. And I and, and I, I guess to sum up everything I'm saying, I think that that Pullman situation is connected to this situation and I think that that person might have probably was his accomplice because if you notice when he got arrested, one of the first things that he said was, did you guys get someone else? You know, I know that could have been a red herring to try to throw things off, but it, it usually when people speak first, it's the truth. You know. Um, it's definitely something to watch, <laughs> to look out for. There's somebody in the audience that said yeah. that we were off on some of our dates, but they're going to send me a list. So I guess that's possible. Yeah, well, I'm off all the time. But... Dates, uh, dates pertaining to pertaining to what situation? I don't know. Something we were talking about just now. I don't know if it was the dates that they got pulled over, maybe, or the dates of the shooting. They got pulled I'm over not, on the 15th. I'm not sure. The, the shooting was on the 15th. Um, but it's like I said, it started on the night of the 14th. His license plate was registered in, uh, not registered, but they, uh, they, they got file of his license plate in Colorado on the 13th. I don't know which day he left. They say that school got out on the 9th. So I'm assuming that the dad flew in somewhere in between the 9th and the 11th or the 12th. Um, but yeah, it, it just yeah, something doesn't make sense, especially with how the affidavit's looking in, in Pullman. On top of that, there, there's there's something extra inserted into this that we're we're not seeing or that they're they're not telling us. Oh, definitely, there's a lot they're not telling us right now. Are you going to tune in for the hearing today? I don't know where it's live streaming. If you guys know, let us know. But yeah, 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 I'll be up for it. There is not going to be much about this hearing that's actually going to happen. It's just it's a hearing about whether to have another hearing. But if you guys if you yeah. guys see anything, I'm not going to be available to watch it. You guys call in and let me know. 
what's going on. I'll play those tomorrow morning. Oh, yeah, yeah. You you know we got you, Midnight. You know, we got eyes all over this. <laughs> I think it's going to be a pretty big non-show is what I think. I don't know how Nancy's going to whip up the ratings for this. Yeah, she, 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 you know, she's been doing what she's been doing for a long time, and she, she has her certain little following. Like I, I've, I've never really watched her. Um, there was just always something annoying about her, but more power to her, more power to her viewers. Well, to be honest, men would rather you know take their men pebbles and put them into a George Foreman grill than be watching something with a woman yelling. You know, <laughs> just to be honest. Yeah. Um. Besides that, you kind of, for, for those of us that just watch, I don't know, get our news from social media and things like that, it's, it's kind of a big leap to go over there and watch Nancy Grace there on primetime cable, you know? A yeah, lot of she's us, sensational. She, she knows how to, you know, get them ratings up and, you know, she has a whole, it's not even her, it's her staff. You know, we just see her, but it's the, her staff that's, that really makes her tick and do the things that she does. You know, that, yeah, it's, that producers, it's all, it's always a producers. And I realized that. And, uh, for example, mm-hmm. when I look at Banfield and she has fluff that she has to produce night after night, I know she's like, damn it is really, this is all you guys have. You know, if we could hear some of those conversations behind the scene, she's like, all right, well I'll make it work, you know? So I joke about it, but I realize what they have to do. But, you know, Nancy Grace, uh, being in front of the, the, Moscow Idaho murder house, for example. Oh, another thing I forgot to bring up too yesterday when I was talking to you. Did did you notice last week that there was three murders in one day in 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 Idaho? Uh, well, no, I didn't. Yeah, well, on the I ninety corridor, right when you get outside of Coeur d'Alene before you get to the Montana border, because like that corridor is only sixty miles long 60 miles wide going through idaho i-90 there's three towns that are like back to back kingston smelterville and i can't think of the other one right now but there was three murders there about five days ago on the same day and i just you know that's like i said in idaho that's not a normal scene maybe compton or new york or (laughs) atlanta or something weird like that it might be a normal scene but uh, there, there's 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 something extra going on in that region there that they're just not really telling us about. Yeah, look that up. If uh, um if you get a chance, just Google um three deaths in in Idaho and look for a news story about less than a week ago. Less than a week ago. Okay, I'll check that out. All right, I'm running out of time. I got like four minutes left, and I have a, a current story that I want to cover about a missing four-year-old. So I appreciate your call, and we'll be back t- tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. Okay, bro. You have a good night, and uh, everybody out there, hit that like button. You know, it doesn't cost anything to do that. I know, that's right. And, uh, everybody have a good night, man, or a good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm glad right, you're bro. recovered now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm back 100%. All right, midnight. All right. That's boss, everybody. I appreciate him calling in. I really do. I got, I'm running out of time. I'm going to shut down the phone line now. And I, I want you guys to see this. This is a missing four-year-old. Maybe she's missing in your area. Maybe you know this girl and you could 
do something to help find her. We're going to find out right now. Now, this is actually kind of close to me. It's in Oklahoma, so I'm going to play this for you guys right now. Um, let me read this for you. Okay. I got a full screen. A four-year-old girl from Cyril, Oklahoma, still missing after she disappeared earlier this week, and authorities are asking the public to assist in the investigation. Athena Brownfield has been missing since last Tuesday, and the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation and Oklahoma Highway Patrol have deployed infrared helicopters, boats, four-wheelers, and person on the ground to search the nearby area in an effort to locate her. Let me make sure I get the date of this correct. This is January 12th, myth, missing persons. So we there was a death of a girl earlier, a month ago, Athena. This is somebody different. Just want to verify that. We've been in the air in helicopters with infrared on the ground around town. There's been a lot of grid searches on foot and on four-wheelers, things like that, Foster said during a press conference on Wednesday afternoon. Our emergency response team, ERT, which is specifically trained to go on foot and search for people and things, are out in coordination with civilians who have come and wanted to volunteer their time and effort. Again, this little girl is only four years old. The PIO uh, confirmed this information, adding, we are still very actively looking for her using all of our tools. We are finding things that we hope might give us clues as to where she is, but we're still actively looking for her. She's been missing since at least Tuesday. Today is actually Thursday. She's four years old. Authorities are also usually also utilizing Oklahoma Department of Corrections dogs to help search. The ground search continued all Wednesday, but concluded after volunteers searched the entire town. What I want to know is how she went missing. I got one minute left, guys. She was reported missing around 2 p.m. Tuesday after a postal worker found her five-year-old sister alone near their residence, which is located about 70 miles. I don't know where the parents were. The older girl was described as frightened but not needing medical care. This is beyond sad. It's not clear how long she was missing before disappearance was reported. Guys, I am out of time. I thank you very much for tuning in. I appreciate it. Uh, this shows a conversation with you. This is your show. That's what that means. It means that we're here for your wild-ass speculations, your wild-ass theories. We put a pin in it, and then when the information comes out, we compare it. And I thank all of you guys that correct us when we're a little bit off. I appreciate that. I always appreciate that. If you're interested in becoming a member, you can do that. There's a link right there above in the chat room, and it lets you know all the different aspects of becoming a member. If you hit the join button, it tells you the different levels. Level 1, 299 is a midnight supporter. If you don't want anything but to support, you can do that. Or a midnighter, that's where you get a video and a live stream exclusive from members. A month, and you also get interest into our Discord. Level three 
is $9.99. Level 2 is $4.99. Level 3 is $9.99. That enters you into our writing class. You get videos about writing and a live stream a month. And we have a class, a meeting, where we go over our assignments. And also you get access to the Discord and access to the other live stream and videos that we give you guys each month. I'd like to thank you guys for joining. Until next time, all my best.